Okay, so tonight we are going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. We're going to be reading a few verses beginning in verse 18. And as you come to chapter 5, as we come to chapter 5, we had looked at these passages on Tuesday night, verse by verse. And here in Chronicles, we are at this point, we're looking at the eastern tribes, those tribes of Israel that settled on the east side of the Jordan River. They had a sort of a continuity that maybe the other tribes didn't have. We know even when they conquered the land with Joshua, when they went back across the Jordan River to receive their inheritance, that there was a misunderstanding about the memorial stone they built so the tribes on the other side wouldn't forget about them. Rivers being very natural dividers and boundaries in the human experience. We know that all over Europe and Asia. Rivers often can be used to define boundaries. And the Jordan River was a natural boundary so that the two and a half tribes on the east side, modern Jordan and even Syria, would feel exposed and disconnected. And you see historically at times they did. As we come to the text tonight and where we were verse by verse is that you have Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was the son of Joseph. So when the tribes were divided, the tribe of Joseph is subdivided because the Levites were the priesthood. So of those 12 tribes, they were spread out throughout the 12 tribes with their ministries amongst the tribes, which we'll see going forward on Tuesday night, verse by verse. And so Joseph's tribe was subdivided and Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Manasseh was a large, huge tribe of people from that subdivision of Israel. And there's West Manasseh on the beach side, if you will, the Mediterranean side of the Jordan River, and then the east side. So this is the east side, and east Manasseh was up towards Syria, toward Damascus, and then Gad and Reuben going to the south, down toward the Dead Sea. All of this is now modern Jordan. And as we come to the text tonight, we, the text verse by verse explained to us the background to Reuben, to Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and eventually going into captivity when they are conquered by the Assyrians. But tonight we have a, a pretty favorable, it is a favorable story. It's a positive story. It's an encouraging story where they had a victory together in a war. The three, the two and a half tribes collectively joined forces in a war against descendants of the Ishmaelites. They fought them and they defeated them. And that's the story we're looking at tonight as we think about our conflicts and our victories, our battles that we have to fight every day. So we pick it up here in verse 18 with that background. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men. Men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war, who went to war, and they made war with the Hagarites, Jetur, Nafish, and Nodab. And they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, for they, that is, these tribes, they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. And then they took away their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, and 2,000 of their donkeys, also 100,000 of their men. For many fell dead because the war was God's, and they dwelt in their place until the captivity. In this time of Jewish history, it would seem this kind of falls after the time of Solomon and before the time of like Josiah and being taken away captive. There's this generation that lived on that side of the Jordan of these two and a half tribes, and you don't read that much about them. So this story does really jump out at us for its uniqueness that it's here in Chronicles 
telling us about this war. I mean, the, the word war is used repeatedly. They made war. They were prepared for war. They were skillful in war. They fought the war, and the war was God's. Those are very important connections of the word war. And war is conflict, and war is real. Wars are always happening. Wars will happen in the end of the age, you know, like wars and rumors of wars. Wars are a reality of the human experience. I actually received a newsletter from Russia this week about one of the churches that we supported there. They're in Crimea, in that part of the world that's got conflict and dispute over territories. And actually, because of the physical war in Ukraine, the Russians and Ukrainians, that one of the key families in the church, uh, the the couple split up over it. They were so divided over the war. And the woman who's a doctor went to Ukraine to be with her people. And the husband, who evidently is Russian, stayed behind. And they're actually being trained for ministry. So there's an example where a war that's very real and affects all of us. By the way, I also prayed for, just randomly was praying for our, the ministries who supported in that part of the world, Russia and the former Soviet republics. And that included Ukraine. So I was praying for the Marquis and thinking about Jonathan Markey and George Markey there in Kiev and Ternopoli. Uh, I'm like, wow. You know, like, you, know, you can pray for a lot of people, but when you pray for pastors who are literally in Ukraine and there's a war, and they might be hundreds of miles from the border of the war, but like a war is a war. Like, if there was a war in Mexicali, we'd all feel it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that's just the reality. And so the context here is very, it's a sobering topic. It's real war. And we know that affects people. But we also know that behind every war, there is a spiritual war. It's the long war against God. It's the war in the heavens that we read about in the book of Revelation, where Satan is cast out and takes a third of the angels, if you will. It seems to imply that. And he's, it's been this long war against God's prized creation, humanity, created in his image. And God loves us so much. And we saw last week that the first words God spoke to humanity was you're blessed and be fruitful and multiply and everything was good. And the devil, who had a glory outside this dimension beyond our comprehension, fell from that, came here, tried to destroy that, has been trying to destroy the good work of God in the lives of human beings ever since. And so when we're born in this world, we're actually born into a war. It's a long war against God. And that's why we're told whether someone's a believer or not a believer, the great reality of Ephesians 6 is that we war not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And we know that Satan was a, he's a super being. He, he was a super angel, not just any angel. He might have been the most beloved angel ever created by the Lord in a different dimension of a different concept we can't even grasp. And his name was changed when he thought himself, his original Darwinist, to, be, to become God. And that thought entered his mind in the rebellion. And when he was cast out and he fell, the demons fell with him. And we have angels watching over us. We're told that angels are innumerable for us. And they are working on behalf, on behalf of humanity and specifically for believers. Because we're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that angels are ministering spirits helping us in our salvation So if you're a follower of Christ, you have angels, literally guarding angels, working for you, looking out for you spiritually and physically in those, as we're seeking to obey God and fulfill his call and purpose on our life and the conflicts and war that comes with it, there are spiritual forces much stronger than us working our behalf. There are guarding angels that are literally fighting our battles for us. And there are fallen angels that literally 
are plotting to destroy us. It is a great spiritual battle. Behind every war of men, there's a spiritual war that's behind it in the heavenly places. And that's very clear in the Bible. And as it breaks down each one of us, this spiritual battle that we enter into, because we're told before we come to Christ, we've been taken captive by the devil to do his will, that we're deceived. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus referred to it as uh, the, the, the God of this age, little G, the prince of the power of the air. And where it really comes ahead for each one of us when we give our life to Christ is described for us in 2 Corinthians 10, where it says to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So where the spiritual battle of the ages that existed before we were created and conceived, that exists outside of this realm, that exists when we leave into eternity outside the realm, for Satan and his fallen angels are cast into the lake of fire. They're not to be a part of the glory that we're going to in the Lord. This is the closest we'll get to hell, and for those that are unsaved, it's the closest we'll ever get to heaven. And this spiritual war is working behind the scenes of everything that we experience in time, space, and matter, and it's working behind us. And the way it comes to us each individually is the battle for our minds, for the battle for the thoughts of the mind, because as a man thinketh, as a woman thinketh, so they become. So when we're thinking God's thoughts after him, and we're Psalm 1 where it says we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, and in it we meditate day and night, our thoughts are proper thoughts. There's the thoughts of God. They're the thoughts of his person, his character, his promises, his kingdom. And we're filling our mind, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we're strengthening ourselves by what we're putting in our mind. And it is truly positive, because everything good about the Lord is a positive thing. Everything God does in our life is good. God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And every end that the Lord has for us is intended for good because all things work together for good to those who are saved and called according to his purpose, being predetermined and destined to be conformed to the image of the Son and to the glory that's to come. That's the standard of our mind, body of Christ, worship generation. But as that standard rules and reigns in our mind, and then it sets our heart in motion, and we protect our heart, we guard our thoughts, and we guard our heart for the Lord, as we go forward every day with the Lord, we enter into conflicts, conflicts in the human experience, spiritual conflicts, spiritual battles, conflicts in our own mind, conflicts just in our own homes, conflicts in our neighborhood, conflicts in our community, conflicts in our state, conflicts in our country, and conflicts on planet Earth, conflicts over thoughts and ideologies and the marketplace of thought and the competition for biblical thought to be presented against demonic thoughts, like Paul in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts, where he presented biblical truth. He's appointed a day when he'll judge all men through his son whom he sent, Jesus Christ. And he's putting a thought out there with the Greek philosopher thoughts and saying, let us compare in the marketplace of thought. And as you know, or would know from the book of Acts, when Paul did that, we're told that some mocked him, some believed immediately, and some say, we'll hear you next week, which is the human experience, isn't it, to the gospel. Some respond, some mock, and some say, "Ah, maybe tomorrow. But of course, with the Lord, it's always today. So realizing tonight, looking at this text and looking at this historical war that we rarely ever think about in the Bible. I mean, how many times have I ever been taught or mentioned the war that happened on the east side 
with, against Ishmaelite kings with two and a half tribes that were victorious, where they trusted in the Lord and God heard their prayer and prospered uh, their end result. This, you have to admit, this is a very unique text. We've never taught this text or thought about this text essentially in uh, 17 years of being a church. So it gets our attention. War, 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 war. Conflict, conflict, conflict. And again, even in their war, physical, there's a spiritual battle behind the scenes that's in play. Because we're told the war is God's. And we're told they cried out to the Lord. They trust in the Lord. And he heard their cry. That's all spiritual, affecting the physical. But since we don't live in a war zone, thankfully, praise the Lord for that, physically. But we do live in a war zone, don't we, spiritually? Our minds live in a war zone with the things that come against it every day that would exalt themselves. Just negative news, toxic people, negative comments, the devil throwing thoughts, temptations, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of eyes. It's a battle every time we wake up. Every day we wake up is a battle. A battle that we fight things from our failures of the past, fears of our future, and the folly of our day. So honestly, I think there's a great application for us in this text about having confidence for victory in our conflicts. Because we have different conflicts. It might just be for your sanity. It might be for your purity. It might be for your marriage. It might be for the souls of your children. It might be for the integrity of your workplace. It might be for the good of your community. It might be for the saving of our country. Every physical conflict and war has a spiritual element behind it. And this text would remind us of that tonight. So as we think about your battles, I would just as the key topic going forward now, remind us that when Paul stepped into eternity, and this is our launching pad for three points from this text. When Paul stepped into eternity there in 2 Corinthians, he said, I've you know, finished the race, I've kept the faith. But what do you say? I've fought the good fight. WG, body of Christ. We're either going to fight the good fight or we're going to be destroyed in the fight. There's no neutrality in the fight. There's light and darkness. There's heaven and hell. There's Jesus and the, there's the devil. There's justification and condemnation. There's love and there's hatred. There's peace and there's confusion. It's going to be one or the other. The world would make everything transitory and ambiguous. But with God, everything is absolutely true. And it's light or darkness morally. And we're reminded of that tonight as we go through this text. We need to fight the good fight. And that means different. There's a commonality for us with the body of Christ, the cultural war. But we need to fight the good fight for the moral war and the character war within our own life and come through this journey of life triumphant and victorious so that we can say in our last day, we've kept the faith, we've finished the race, and we've fought the good fight. The first thing we see in this text practically is there in verse 18 where it says it's practical. It says they're valiant men. That's a hard word to grasp in the Hebrew. It's a broad meaning. Uh, They they were able men, also a word that's very broad in its meaning in the Hebrew, used in a lot of different ways. But the third word is very key, skillful in war. Skillful in war. The word skillful here is 
it does have a good absolute meaning. It means to be so uh, adept or capable at something that not only are you, you would say professional at it, but you're capable of instructing others in it. So they were skillful in war. Like they're special, they're contextually, they're special. They were really skillful in war. Like they were an effective military unit. You think like Navy SEALs or something like that, or Green Berets, like just a more elite group of people. They were elite. They were skillful. And now we'll see the word skillful used in Chronicles, and we'll see it used in the Bible a few times. This word's not used a lot, the Hebrew word, and there's a different word for skillful as well. This one's only used about five to ten times. But for us, it's a very simple meaning. It means you are so good at what you do, and you're so reverent about it practically that you can teach others to do it. As we think about serving the Lord and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, now we've been talking about this, we're not saved by our righteous works. We understand that. By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there's no practical human skill morally or practically that we can do that would save our soul. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And then we know we're saved from something to something. So we're saved from sin and death and darkness to light and life and the kingdom in Jesus. So we're, we enter into that workmanship, that work of art. We become that work of art. So we're, we're saved towards something. And it's the restoration of things that were lost in Genesis 1 and 2. And we have a work. And we understand as we look in the human experience, God has given everybody... There are a few rare exceptions, but almost everybody, some special, well, all life matters. So whether a life seems to have, you, if someone looks at life and says that life doesn't matter, if someone's such an invalid that they can't contribute, appear to contribute anything to life, their presence on planet Earth contributes something to life. For every life matters, and we can never be a judge and jury of anything other than that. We have to respect and value all human life at all times. With that in mind, we understand that some people maybe are more gifted than others. I was speaking with Jack McCune before service, and we were talking about, uh, we had people mention on Tuesday night how his voice seems to have improved, and I've always thought his voice was great, but there were some comments like, wow, he really, you know, and I noticed, I felt like his worship found another level, and we were talking about leading worship at Reality LA, and what he's been growing, he's a man now, and his voice isn't going through changes, and he's, he's locked in, and he's finding his keys, and where his sweet spot is, and he's getting, he's getting better at his skill. He's a worship leader, and he leads worship at Reality A without a guitar. That would make your singing more skillful, right? If the only thing you have is your singing, then you really, you can't hide behind your guitar. Karen Carpenter played the drums. She was a phenomenal drummer, if you didn't know that. Karen Carpenter, that incredible voice of hers. And it took a lot of persuasion from Herb Alpert, who was her manager, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. He was her manager to convince her to get out from hiding behind the drums because she hid behind the drums. She was very uh, socially awkward in a public concert setting to just stand there and sing. But when that's all you do, and that's the only skill on display, it should elevate and glorify the Lord. And these men were skillful at war. They were trained and they were skillful. And so as we think about the battles we fight, spiritual battles, and go through real life, your practical skills and gifts that God's given you are used for his glory. We've been talking about Colossians where it says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So whether you're cleaning toilets at Atlanta airport, like I mentioned last week, or 
rest stops outside of El Paso or whether the maids work in the Sheraton Hotel with your Eastern European languages, you show up and you're providing a service and you're bringing a skill. There's, there's a right way to clean the room. By the way, the Sheraton back then was 200 a night. So if you're cleaning the room, people are showing up there. Hey, the, five, the 50 governors came there with President Bill Clinton in 1996 to do the governor's convention. And those maids who are working barely above minimum wage, most of them Eastern European, they were expected to do a job a certain way. And those governors expected the rooms to be a certain way. There's dignity when you serve the Lord. There's dignity in anything and everything that we do. And there is an excellence that should be sought after and pursued for his glory in everything that we do. The greatness that God intends for each one of us isn't the measure by someone else. It's the measure by us. In fact, I said facetiously with Jack that, you know, we've, we've had two 16-year-old worship leaders since we started this church here. Now, the measure is always going to be Phil Wickham because he was a worship leader for at, at 16 at Calvary Coast of Mesa. And like, well, what can you say about Phil Wickham, right? But since being a church, we've had two people lead worship here who are 16 and were phenomenal. Jack McEwen's one of them. It's been more than 10 years. The other, though it wasn't for long, was Madison Cunningham, who, as I mentioned last week, if you don't know, won the Grammy Award three weeks ago for Best Folk folk music artist. So I told Jack, no pressure. <laughs> I go, well, it's, uh, see, we don't measure Jack by Maddie Cunningham and her Grammy Award or Phil Wickham and what he was doing in 19, excuse me, in 2000 at 16. Jack's only measured by Jack and it's a beautiful measurement. We all love Jack and his skills are phenomenal. Joe Henschel was 17 at the same time Phil Wickham was 16. They went to the same church, and Joe was inevitably always compared to Phil Wickham. And Joe never, we know Joe, he, he, that didn't bother Joe at all. He was always compared to Char Broderson as well because they were peers going to school. And he, he took care of that as well. Joe was very secure being Joe Henschel. He just turned 39 a few weeks ago. He's always been comfortable being Joe Henschel. I was his PE teacher in second grade, I can tell you. Joe Henschel was always comfortable being Joe Henschel. But he had a band called Farewell Down. We took them on tour. He's special to us, and he's measured by his greatness what the Lord has for him, not what the world thinks of him. This is important because they were skillful at war, and God has given you gifts and me gifts to be skillful for his glory. And when those gifts are used for the Lord, if it's cleaning bathrooms or being the President of the United States, it is still war because your gifts belong to the Lord. And so when you go to work and you live in society and whatever you're doing that you do to bless other people in Jesus' name, because we're called to do that, your gifts are your skills practically and they're meant to be under the power of the Holy Spirit. They're meant to be developed by the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ in your journey. In other words, the practical skills that God gives us, we need to identify them develop them, and let them be polished and shine for the Lord. Either you're growing or you're dying. And so we have practical gifts that God has given us, and we want to polish those gifts. We want to refine those gifts. We want excellence in those gifts for the Lord. Now, theirs was skill for war. And if you're going to war, isn't it nice to have skillful military? If, if someone's fighting for your village, don't you want them to be skillful soldiers as opposed to poorly trained soldiers? Skill developed, polished, and 
move to excellency glorifies the Lord. And that's what we want to do with the skills we have. I always often compare this to Jesus and the, the water being changed to wine, the water pots. If you think of your talents and skills, your practical talents and skills that you do, whatever you do in life, medical field, just anything, landscaping, whatever, it's for the Lord. And if you climb a tree and trim trees, do a really good job. Clean up properly. Do the job right and let it shine for the Lord. Because ultimately, that's our greatness. Whatever he's given us to do, be better, be greater, and pursue your greatness. Because my greatness isn't measured by any other teacher speaker before the Lord. It's measured by what the Lord has given me and how he wants me to use it, how I think, how I communicate. Again, with Jack and his worship, it's not measured by anyone else. It's measured by what God's given him, as is yours. So what you do is important and valuable. And as you do it for the Lord, there will be conflicts. There'll be conflicts with people at work because you represent the Lord. And you wonder, why are these people giving me a hard time? I'm doing a great job. They're giving you a hard time because the devil's turned them up against you. That's why. Because you shine for light and they walk in darkness and darkness hates light. But keep on shining and keep doing the best job. If you ever get removed from a job, let it be not for being obnoxious or lazy or misrepresenting the Lord. Let it be because you shine, you shone so bright for the Lord that people who hate the Lord just couldn't take it. But still, you left that place better than when you found it, and they'll miss you when you're gone. We want to develop our skills, fill our water pots, and then let the Lord do what he wants to do. See, if we show up for the battle and we've filled our water pots, then it's up to him to turn it to wine. And if he chooses to, yay. If he doesn't, okay. But at least we did our part. Don't bring a sloppy offering to the Lord with your once-in-a-lifetime human experience. And again, 80 people, 80% of people go to work to jobs they don't like and don't give their best effort. And by the way, most industries... 20% of the industry makes 80% of the profit because they do show up with the right attitude and the hustle and the game, and they're growing and learning and getting better. And you say, well, Joy, this sounds like business you're talking about. Well, what's the kingdom business? Listen to what the Holy Spirit said to, through Paul the Apostle to Timothy. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come... Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Now, that's what the Lord expects of me as a pastor and your teacher. That's what he expects of you and what you're called to do in your field. Be the best you can be with the skills God's given you. Because really, we'd like to think it's sunshine and unicorns and happy days when we go to work. But it is a battle. And there is conflict at work. There's conflict. There's conflict for our homes. There's conflict for our children. There's conflict for our marriage. There's conflict for our community. Like I said, there's, there's conflict. The will of God going forward is the repulsion of the kingdom of hell going backwards. And we're called to be salt and light. And so when you go to work, there's going to be conflict. So go with your best game and let it shine for the Lord. Go skillfully. Arrive early. 
do the job right, do it with the right attitude, finish the job, let it shine for the Lord. And as you, as you put together these, these examples of who you are as a woman, as a man, and your character and how you apply yourself to work, as you go through life and you suddenly you realize you've had the, a career for 35 years like me in ministry, you don't want to look back and say, I should have done so much better here. You want to go from glory to glory to glory. And if you retire, like some of you are, figure out what it is that God's calling you to do because we're not called to retire from life. Because if you retire from life, you'll just roll over and die. It's forward, onward, and upward. The day Charles Schultz quit doing the Peanuts comic strip is the day he died, literally. We have purpose to our last breath. Man, when I'm in memory care, visiting my dad, and I'm trying to cheer everybody up in the dining hall. I'm like, everyone here has purpose. Every, my dad gets happy when I kiss him in front of everybody. He's like, Aww. And the lady's like, you must have been a wonderful son. And I just go, he's a great dad. My dad was a great man. You people be blessed, huh? Lord, bless them all. The workers are there bringing, bless them all. Lord, they're in memory care. The door locks. You know, you got to get let out. Bring the blessing. Bring the best of your skill every day to what you do till the last day. And we go from glory to glory. We have different seasons. You might work in a room service. You might work in a surf shop. You might be the coach of the Chilean team. You might be the coach of the U.S. Olympic team. You might pastor a small church. You might pastor a big church. You might be with Pastor Chuck. You might be in a hotel in Vermont and no one even knows you're even there. And what I've learned is bring your skill. Be skillful. Develop your skills and let them shine for the Lord. That's how we how we come to our battles with confidence to know that we've given the Lord our best and we're offering our best and we're bringing our best. Or as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say at Calvary, no lame offerings. He used to talk about how people drop off their junk for the Lord at the church. Don't drop off your junk. Put that at savers or goodwill or something. Don't bring lame offerings to the Lord. Don't let our life be a lame offering. The vast majority of humanity lives a mundane life with no vision and no purpose. That's a lame offering. We come here with the communion table. We come here with worship with Jack and people like him. We come here with the word of God and all the promises. Man, of all people on earth to whom much is given, much is required, being an American, the opportunities given us, no excuses in Jesus' name, only the best. Skillful at what we're called to do. The second thing we see is they cried out to the Lord. Yes, they cried out to the Lord. And it says that he gave them victory. So they cried out, he gave them victory. They're in uh, verse 20. They became desperate. They were in the battle, and in the battle they cried out to the Lord. And it says that they, the Lord heard their cry, he answered their cry. So obviously, if we say they were practically skilled, we can say they were perfectly dependent. Now, this story has its limits, right? So we know in this battle, in this war, that collectively... These 45,000 men in combat, their leadership, collectively they cried out to the Lord for victory. Like a national entity, they were in it together. And it's, it's probably, the, really this story has to be the high water mark of all the good things that ever happened to the two and a half tribes on the east side. They collectively together, nationally. Because again, these two and a half tribes are a little closer than the other tribes. They had a commonality. They're on the other side of the river. They're on the wrong side of the tracks. And in that commonality, they were bound together in their fate. And collectively together in this war, the war was God's, 
they cried out to the Lord and he heard their cry. He answered their cry and he gave them victory. It's all there for us in the narrative. And so they were truly dependent upon the Lord. Moses, when he gave the law, he told the nation of Israel that you would cling to the Lord for he is your life and the length of your days. He exhorted them to cling to the Lord. Jesus in John 15, when he said, abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing, the word abide actually can be translated cling. It has that same idea of Moses when he gave the law. We are designed and meant to be, as human beings, desperately dependent upon God for all things. For again, as Paul said on Mars Hill, for in him we move and live and have our very being. All things are made by him and for him and held together in him and consist. All things are for him and of him. The fullness of becoming our workmanship and our gifts, practically our gifts spiritually, shining for the Lord is total dependency upon the Lord. And I I realize here at Worship Generation, most of you are living like this. But for me and all of us, it's good to be reminded of this. They were desperate for the Lord. And there's things that we do by faith that make us desperate for the Lord, like we'll go on an adventure. Janet Lee, when she went to the Philippines at Christmas time and her big adventure for five, six weeks at that orphanage that she went to and served. That was quite an adventure. And that, that would make you desperate for the Lord. Brandon saw the photo of Pastor Brandon and myself where she went to this one public place and the men just froze. They're on the bus and they're going to do this big outreach. And the guys got off the bus and they just froze. The guys just froze. And it fell on Janet Lee, a medical tech from Chalk Hospital, Orange County, to start saying something as the village was gathering. And she started with the story of David and Goliath and preached the gospel from there. I think it's safe to say on that day, I was probably maybe enjoying Christmas break. She was desperate for Jesus in that moment. Out of her comfort zone, a faraway country, and it all came on her to present the gospel to these people in this situation. In fact, so inspiring, when I watched the video, I literally was crying. It's a beautiful thing to see people desperate for the Lord by steps of faith they might take. What they would do and, and go, going for it. See, Peter, when he sank in the Sea of Galilee, was desperate for the Lord. He chose to be desperate for the Lord. He said, Lord, if that's you, call me to come out to you. And Jesus said, come on. And we say this about Peter. He defied time, space, and matter. He defied the physical laws of the universe, and he walked on water. Body of Christ, Peter walked on water miraculously because eternity came over that situation, that Roman dimension, and gave him authority over it because the one dimension usurps the other. But then, of course, he looked at the waves, which we do, the conflict, the battle, the tension, people opposing us, people at work opposing us, people in the neighborhood opposing us, people in the community opposing us, people in the sports team opposing us, people at college opposing us, the professor opposing us, the president opposing us, whoever we can think of on planet Earth opposing us. And we can look at that and we can sink and take our eyes off Jesus and we sink. He was desperate. He put himself, listen, Peter put himself in a desperate place by faith. And even though he sank, the Lord rescued him. And I have found in my 35 years of ministry, I've put myself in some very desperate places with the Lord. 
And I can testify of his faithfulness in every one of them. You can never step out in faith in in a desperate place with the Lord and not see him come through because he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So even if it's craziness and stuff you just can't comprehend at all, just know the Lord has it and he will come through. But then as we live our life, we have conflicts without Because again, when you step out in ministry like Janet Lee going to the Philippines, who knows what kind of spiritual battle she fought on the island of Luzon or whatever. And I just, I can't even imagine. But I do know it's like to go to different countries and different places and feel like you're against spiritual entities that are trying to destroy you. And you feel like, I've never faced this battle before. I've never fought through these kind of things, the oppression and the discouragement. And you, you have to work through it. But sometimes, again, you just get up to go to work in Southern California and you go to the workplace and it's oppressive and there's a battle because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And each step forward, you being skillful and shining for the Lord with your talents, there is opposition from those who oppose the Lord. And again, sometimes people just pick on you, give you a hard time, try and wreck your day just because they're sons of Adam and daughters Eve or because the devil has them stirred up. And you might say to someone, "Why, why did you try to destroy me like that? After all I went through at the U.S. surf team where quite a few people tried to destroy me, I found out a couple years later, one of the families involved, when they were asked why they did this to me, they said, we just wanted our friend to be the coach. That sounds like Little League Baseball. Sounds like T-ball even. AOSO soccer. Let's destroy the coach because we want our friend to be the coach. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. But for me, it was a spiritual battle. It was a demonic attack on me and my integrity as a pastor. And the things I did to try and bless other people and serve them. So they just wanted someone else to be the coach. But in the spiritual realm, how it affected my mind and my spiritual battles and my calling, it was much more far-reaching than that. But I was going forward with the Lord with Team USA. And I was serving the Lord with Team USA. And I was shining for the Lord with Team USA. Because for all the controversy the U.S. Olympic team, U.S. Olympic Committee had during that timeline for sexual predators and pedophiles, mine was for praying with people, which is okay with me. And I'm sure it's okay with you on the day of the Lord. We need to be desperate for the Lord. David said this in Psalm 5. He, he said, this is kind of, you know, I've been going through the Psalms lately, and of course they always speak to us, but he said, Consider my meditation, O Lord. Give heed to my voice and my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I'll direct it to you and I will look up. And that's how we start our day. We cry out to the Lord in the morning. We're like Daniel, morning, noon, and night. We're clinging, we're abiding. It's that consciousness of God that no matter what happens, and it catches everyone off guard, like you were with Jesus the moment before and you were with Jesus in the moment of crisis. That's how it's meant to be. To just, they cried out to the Lord in battle, and he heard their cry and delivered them. And the Lord is for us. And Romans 8, 31 says, if God be for us, who can be against us? We're not trying to conquer the world. We're trying to save the world. And there's a big difference. So bring the skill under the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ and bring the prayer life, and bring the dependency. Be desperate for the Lord, whether we've stepped out in faith to be desperate, or the circumstances at work, in the home, in the family, health, cancer, 
life-threatening terminal. Let us be desperate to the Lord. Let us cry out to him. Let us know him. Let us cling to him. And let us know that he's got our back no matter what is going on. Let us prove him. See, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. And that's what he wants to do for us. So when we're in the conflict, when we're in the war, he wants us to be desperate. He wants us to go for it and to cry out. You know, we fill our water pots like, oh, that's not going to help right now. That's right, because sooner or later we need him to touch those water pots and make it supernatural. So be trusting in the Lord. Do our part, but look to the Lord for him to do his part. And that's how they were. And that third and final thing is they completely trusted in the Lord. So they were skillful for the war. They, were, they cried out to God and they fully trusted in the Lord. But we can say they were practically skilled. They were perfectly dependent. And they were completely trusting. Completely trusting the Lord is a humbling place and difficult place to be for most of us, myself included. It's hard. I want to have some measure of control. I want at least, you know, I want to, I want to have an exit strategy. I want to have a plan. I, I want to be able to walk if I don't like the way this is going. But there's just some things in life, inevitably life itself, when you're facing the grave, we just have no choice but to trust in the Lord. Sooner or later, you can't trust the doctors. Sooner or later, you can't trust your wealth and your assets. Sooner or later, you can't trust your friends. Paul said in the end of his life, everyone's forsaken me, all of them. But the Lord will never forsake us. You might die alone. When you step into eternity, when I step into eternity, we might do so alone without any loved ones around us. We might step into eternity maligned and misunderstood. But we will go the way of all men. And we go with Jesus, with our faith in him. They were completely trusting in the Lord in this situation. They had no choice to. They're fighting Ishmaelites, they have tens of thousands of people in battle. This is a, I could almost picture like a movie scene with this war look like this battle, this conflict. This, this is a massive battle. This is an epic battle. These are tens of thousands of soldiers against each other in modern Jordan. And this happened. Think about how the women were affected. Their husbands have gone off to war. Think about the children. Is dad going to make it back? Like, this is for their future. They are fighting for their lives and their existence. And through victory, they gain possession and wealth. And it says their dwelling place. Now, another generation later on lost all that, but not them. This generation gained all that, which is why I always go back to, it's not about what happened before us or what's going to happen after us, although we're trying to prepare the way for a better future for our children's children. But nonetheless, we have today, we have here and now. This is our here and now. And we're about the kingdom business for here and now. And that's what we have to be focused on. And of course, the Bible makes that very clear. This is the day we have. But when we think about completely trusting the Lord, I, I had this thought. Because the definition of trusting means to have full confidence in. That's the macro definition of trusting, to have full confidence in. And we have, we've said this before, we have confidence in the pilot when we get on the plane. I don't even know him. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? Beautiful day in Melbourne, Florida, huh? Hey, keep us safe, huh? You know, like, I have full confidence. I don't know anything about his personal life or her personal life. I just have full confidence in them without even knowing anything about them that if they're a Delta pilot, they've been properly trained and they're going to get me safely from Melbourne Airport, MLB, to the ATL, Atlanta. And this big old plane going to LAX, I didn't even saw those guys, them, her, them, not... 
I just got in my seat and I'm fully confident. I got an aisle seat. I got to be near the bathroom, right? It's all good. I got my book. I got everything. I never even worry about who's flying that plane. See, we trust so many people in so many ways in in a manner that, that often usurps our trust in the Lord. We need to be desperate for the Lord, clean to the Lord, and trust in the Lord. I shared this happened a few weeks ago, and it's not meant to make anyone look bad. It just is an example of how we often think. But I got known in the Bible study, and I was trying to encourage someone, and no matter what I said, they just couldn't accept it as being something positive and encouraging for their life. And they brought up how they're going to court the next day, and it's a woman judge, and she's totally woke. And I'm like, I just taught the Bible for 50 minutes, and we're talking about a woman judge that's woke. Like, what part of two chapters did you not get? And I said, well, I go, you mean to tell me you're you're trusting Jesus to raise you from the grave on the day of the Lord, and you're worried about a woke judge in in Santa Ana? And they said, oh, no, she's a woke judge in Riverside County. Wow. That's even scarier. I was like, I can't help you. I like literally when you're a pastor, you realize, I can't help this person. Look at me. How can I help that person? I just taught two chapters of the Bible. How can I help that person? They've got a little God and a big problem. Woke judge in Riverside. Either Jesus is on the throne or he's not. And he is. And he holds all things together. And he knows the hairs on our head and every detail of our life and every cell in our body. And he's worthy of our trust. And we can trust him and we should trust him. Fullest confidence during the football playoffs. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but not quite this detail. We're at dinner at our dinner table, and it's chaos with the grandkids here. It's total chaos, but I'm, I'm watching the Chiefs in the Bengals fourth quarter. And I said to me, hey, you know, you know this game's going to come down to Patrick Mahomes marching down field with less than a minute to go, and the Chiefs are going to kick a field goal and win. Because we just know that's Patrick Mahomes. I go, team, I've been alive 60 years. That's Tiger Wood, Michael Jordan, Kelly Slater, Tom Brady. Like, that, that's that guy, dude. That's Serena Williams. Like, that's this guy. Uh, they're like, oh, we got to get back to that. Listen, don't even worry about it. Well, what's the last minute? That's what's going to happen. It's exactly what happened. When I was in Florida, I'm at a Super Bowl party with Philadelphia Eagle fans. I'm like, I'm leaving after the first half because I know where this is going to go. They're all yucking it up, all this Philly food. Everyone's like, yeah, you know, and Luke's like, don't say anything about the Chiefs. I'm like, okay, I won't say anything about the Chiefs. You know, I just, you know, when in Rome, be a Roman, right? So, and I watched that first, first half. I'm like, man, Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes are going to come out here and they're going to blast these guys and win this game. And I'm getting out of here before it starts because no fans are like Philly fans when they're losing. Charger fans expect to lose. Philly fans, they expect to win. That's the difference, right? See, I have no confidence in the Chargers. They blow a 27-point lead in the playoffs. I have confidence in Patrick Mahomes. And sure enough, like, I'm like, I don't care if it's 38 to nothing. They're going to win this game. And I thought about this. If I was a Chiefs fan, I would trust Patrick Mahomes. Like, Patriot fans trusted Tom Brady. Or like back when Tiger Wood would have the, you know, the red shirt and the black pants on Sunday to major, like, oh, man, it's over already, man. It's over. It's just over. Or Kelly Slater in his prime's like, he shakes your hand before you paddle out. It's over. It's just over. Serena Williams in her prime's like, girl, just go home. It's over. And we could trust if you were betting kind of person, he's like, it's going to go this way. Human beings have trust and confidence in people and things and circumstances and all these things all the time. We are the body of Christ and our trust and confidence. Because see, even Patrick Mahomes doesn't win all the time. Even Serena Williams doesn't win all the time. Even Tiger Woods doesn't win all the time. 
Jesus Christ is victorious over everything all the time. He is completely in control of our spirit, mind, and body. He is completely in control of this universe. He is completely in control of his workmanship intended for our life. And he's worthy to be trusted at the highest level. And if he makes us desperate because of conflict and war, that we trust him that much more, good for us, because he cares and he wants our confidence to be in him. If he makes us desperate by calling us to step out in faith for more battles that we didn't really want to fight, but we're called to fight him because we're stepping out in faith, good for us. Because our confidence will go up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which is really living, right? That's really living. For the just shall live by faith. And that's how we're called to live. So worship generation, I look at this story from so long ago with 45,670 men going to war. They prepared themselves. They were desperately dependent, perfectly dependent upon the Lord. And they completely trusted in the Lord. And the Lord rewarded them. We are told to be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus will do just that. And we're told in Proverbs to trust the Lord with all of our heart, to lean not on our own understanding, but to acknowledge him in all of our ways, and he will direct our path. So yes, war, practical, war, spiritual, is real. Yes, conflict in all of our lives is real every day. But if we're trusting the Lord, we're looking to the Lord, and we're all in for the Lord, and we're dependent upon the Lord, and we're truly trusting him, we're going to be victorious. I wish we, I could tell you we could get from here to eternity without conflict, but I must tell you, body of Christ, we have conflict till the last day. In our mind and for everything that we treasure and value that's true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and holy, there will be conflict for it in this dimension. So fight the good fight and fight it confidently with our eyes on Jesus.